Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're at the point in the creed, if you look at Lord's Day 7, we're at that second article, I believe in Jesus Christ. We've dealt with the meaning of the word, the name Jesus, that is Savior. We've dealt with the meaning of the name or the title Christ, which is anointed. And now we come to the second part of Article 2 of the Creed, His Only Begotten Son, our Lord. And if you have your songbook still handy or open, turn with me for a moment to the Nicene Creed, because the Nicene Creed expands on this article of the Apostles' Creed, and it expands quite a bit on it. That's on page 494 in your book of praise. And there in the Nicene Creed, page 494, and this is how the church confesses that truth of the creed. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Now, as we're reading this, notice how many times it says only begotten. The only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. Now, when we read this, we need to understand that this is theological language. When we think of substance, we think of something tangible, something substantial, something created or material. But our fathers at the Council of Nicaea and the subsequent councils were not thinking of something material or created. But this is a word which means, theologically, something which exists. So we could say that we're confessing here that he's begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, of one essence with the Father, of one nature with the Father. And that is the conclusion that the Nicene Creed comes to after having three times confessed that Jesus is begotten of the Father. He is begotten, the only begotten Son of God. He is begotten of the Father before all ages. He is begotten, not made. And then look at that line in the middle. It's saying the same thing. He is God of God. In other words, God bringing forth God. He is light of light, true God of true God. So in a multitude of ways, the Nicene Creed affirms that the Son is generated by the Father, or the Son is begotten by the Father. Why is the Nicene Creed saying this in a, a whole pile of different ways? Well, the Council of Nicaea happened in the year 325. It was the first ecumenical, the first worldwide Christian synod or council, and it was dealing, amongst other things, with a heresy from a man called Arius. And Arius was a popular preacher, he was a good communicator, and one of his catchy little phrases in his sermons was this, as he was speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, he would say this, there was a time when he was not. There was a time when he was not. In other words, Arius taught that Jesus is not of the very same nature as God, who is eternal, who has always existed, but that Jesus Christ is 
a very high and a very prominent and a very significant, but nevertheless a created being, something God made. And that's why, if you still have the Nicene Creed open, the fathers at the first ecumenical council said, oh no, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not who Jesus is. He is begotten, not made. There is never a time when he was not. There is never a time that the Son of God did not exist. He is God of God. Now, this was a a pernicious heresy, and we know from what we've learned already in the Catechism from the Scripture, we know what happens if Christ is not true God. We know that there's no no, no salvation and no hope. This is a very serious heresy. And Arius was a very popular communicator, plus he knew how to write poetry, and so he managed to get his ideas into popular uh, poems, which were read at the the parties, into popular songs, and so this theology was spread through literature and through art, and it was hard for the church to fight against it. People everywhere were humming and singing and quoting these little ditties that Arius was using to promote his bad theology. And things don't change. The kingdom of darkness really doesn't have a huge library of techniques, but the kingdom of darkness does the same thing nowadays. There are so many so-called Christian songs out there that teach very bad theology, but they're catchy and they're fun to sing, they're fun to listen to. Be careful because you might be learning, we might be learning teachings which are not consonant with the scriptures as we listen to certain types of music. Now, why would the church confess that the scripture teaches that, that the Son is begotten? And, and it's, when we deal with the two natures of Christ, when we deal with the Trinity, this is such heady stuff. It's it's stuff that has to do with a total other category of being with which we are hardly familiar except through the revelation that God has given us. So we need to be very humble and very careful when we talk about it. But what the church is trying to get through to us is this, that just like a biological child has, has the DNA of its parents, it has the same nature as its parents, well, that's the kind of language that God has chosen to use to explain to us the relationship in the Trinity between the first and the second person. That the first person who is the Father and the second person who is the Son, they have that type of a relationship. Obviously, there's no DNA in God because He is not physical. He's not created. And there is no uh, mother and father because it's not a human being that we're talking about. But what God is explaining to us with the language of Father and Son is that the Son is of the same nature as the Father. That is the eternal relationship that they have. You see, a son, a human son, is begotten by his Father. A human son is of the same nature as the Father who generated him. So a human father generates or begets a human son. And one who is God begets a son in his own nature. So God 
if he will generate or beget a son, that son must be of the same nature, and that nature is to be God. And we know that there is only one God, which means that the Father is the only God, and the Son, being his Son, is also the only God. Now, the Bible teaches and the church confesses that this has always been the case. From all eternity, the Father communicates the one simple, undivided, divine essence to the Son. And theologians call this the eternal generation of the Son. Not that it's always going on, because there's no time in eternity. It just is. This is just the way God is, because God doesn't change. There's no process or change in God. Well, that's all very heady stuff, isn't it? It's very abstract and perhaps difficult to process. But like I've mentioned before, the catechism has already made very clear from the Scripture that we need a Christ who is true God. Because if Jesus is not true God, then he cannot bear the eternal punishment that our sins deserve. If Jesus is not true God, we have no hope. We have no salvation. And that's why it's so important for us to confess who he really is. And so we've already confessed that he is uh, truly God and, and, and truly man earlier in the Catechism. But here the emphasis is on how he came to be the only begotten Son. Why is he called only begotten? Why does the Nicene Creed emphasize that over and over and over? Well, the answer is because it's true. There's no one else like him. There is no one who has a relationship to the Father that Christ has to the Father, or with the Father. The Bible says, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that he is the image of the invisible God. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that he, Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So the radiance of the glory of God you can think of light, a light source, the sun, and then the light proceeding from it. That's all one thing. That's why the Nicene Creed says that he is light of light. And that's a reference to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. So all of this to emphasize that he is truly and totally and completely God. Now, we read John chapter 1, and you may have noticed when we got to verse 14, we have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father. You may also notice in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And the older people here, I would think, will remember that all their translations didn't write it that way. All the translations said in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son. And all the translations said in John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. 
If you look in the ESV, which we use here in this church in public worship, if you look for any text which says that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, you will find zero texts which say that. Now, why is that? There are a number of texts which, if you consult an older version, will say uh, that he is the only begotten Son of God, and I've cited a few of them. Our version chooses to translate the Greek word behind what used to be translated only begotten. Our version chooses to translate it as the only, or the only one, or the unique one. You can see the footnote there in your ESV. Why is that? Well, we need to look a little bit into what has happened in theology in the last hundred years. I'll try to keep it a little bit short here, but this is what has happened. In the last hundred years, some scholars discovered that the word in the Greek, which we used to translate only begotten, is sometimes used in Greek to refer to something which is unique or one of a kind. And so there was an ancient writing from one of the church fathers in which he says the phoenix is a unique creature one-of-a-kind creature. And he uses the word, which in Greek is monogenes, he uses that word to describe something unique or one-of-a-kind. Then these scholars looked at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. If you turn there, you'll see that the apostle here in 11, verse 17, is talking about Abraham. When he was tested, He offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. And that is the word monogenes again. But the scholars said Isaac wasn't the only begotten son because Abraham had Ishmael too. So it can't mean the only generated son. There were two sons that were begotten. So it must mean that other meaning of the word, because they're both legitimate meanings, it must mean that other meaning which is the one and only or the unique, the special son. Well, there were a lot more arguments brought to bear about Greek and the ancient writings of the church fathers and the Septuagint and all kinds of theological arguments, and scholars are still arguing about this today, actually. But they decided that the reading of the church for the last 1,800 years was not the best translation. It's a possible translation, only begotten. But a better translation is to say only or one and only. And that's why in the ESV we don't have only begotten. So what does that mean? Well, the reason I went into this, I normally don't go into translation details and sermons. They're not very edifying at all. But you need to know why the Nicene Creed has that language of begotten, begotten, begotten. And and you won't find that actual phrase only begotten in the scriptures in the translation we have. I just wanted you to know that. But this is one reason, one more reason why it's good for believers to have lots of different translations. No one translation can capture all the nuances and the richness of the Word of God in the original languages. Every translation is sufficient for us to come to know the Lord. But if you want to really get to know the Word, it's great to read different translations and you can kind of get a better picture of the meaning of the original. 
So it's good to have different translations. Even in our current translation, which is a legitimate possibility, they're both legitimate possibilities, only begotten or only, the Bible makes clear that Christ is the Son of God in a different way than we are sons of God. So none of our belief hangs on or depends on what scholars are arguing about to be the best translation. So we sang Psalm 2. We sang the second part of Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, God declares of the Son, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Now, what is today for God? God dwells in eternity. He doesn't dwell in time. He is the great I am. And so Psalm 2, verse 7, is one of the texts which speak of the eternal generation of the Son, that He is begotten of the Father. That is clear already in the Old Testament. And because the Father is who He is, because the Father is the great I am, the everlasting one, and because Jesus says that everything the Father has, He has given to me, that He has granted to the Son to have life in Himself as the Father has life in Himself. So, so Jesus the Son has eternity. Jesus the Son has omnipotence. Jesus the Son has being in itself, that he derives his being from nothing or no one, but he exists in himself. He is God of God. That's why whatever the Father has, the Son has. Now, if you look in John chapter 8, verse 58, in John chapter 8, the Pharisees are arguing with Jesus. And Jesus says to them in chapter 8, verse 58, Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And they knew exactly what he meant. They knew that he was calling himself Yahweh. I am who I am. And that's why, if you look what happened next, Look in verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. They understood that he had committed blasphemy, calling himself God. If you stay there in John chapter 8, and you see throughout the chapter that the Pharisees are arguing with the Lord, and what happens in, in these verses from 31 down to the end of the chapter is that Jesus makes clear to them that they have their father and he has his father. And Jesus makes clear to them that they are like their father, and he is like his father. That they talk and think and act in a way which reflects the nature that they derive from their father. And who is their father? Well, look in John 8, 44, John 8, 44, where the Lord says, You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. So Jesus says, this is who you are because that's who your dad is. That's who your father is. You're just like him. You have the same nature. You were begotten by a liar, and so you are liars. You were begotten by the father of all murderers, and so you are murderers. And then they 
they show that Jesus is right at the end of this chapter by trying to kill him and murder him. They prove his point. And in contrast, Jesus makes clear in this passage that he reflects the nature of his Father. And you see that in verse 45, because I tell the truth. Just as the Father is truth, so the Son is truth. What he does, what he says, reflects the character and nature of the Father. But if you're still there in in John chapter 8, look at verse 50, and then look at verse 54 as well. In, in verse 50, the, the Lord Jesus says this, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. And then look at verse 54, where he says this, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. Now, how is it possible? How is it possible that the Father would seek the glory of anyone beside himself? How can the Father seek the glory of another? What does the Bible say? Well, look at Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. Isaiah 42, 8 says this, My glory I give to no other. Or you can translate it, I do not share my glory with anyone. God doesn't go around seeking to glorify other people or other things or other creatures or other beings. His glory is His alone. God cannot seek the glory of anyone except Himself. So when the Father glorifies the Son, then God is glorifying himself in his being. The Son and the Father have the same being, or in the language of the Nicene Creed, the same substance. That's why the Father can glorify the Son, because it is God glorifying God. And that works. Nothing else will. What we read this morning bears this out. You remember that we read as a background reading through this morning's sermon, Isaiah chapter 6. And we're going to flip there in a second, but first I want you to go to John 12 verse 41. Because John 12 41 refers to Isaiah 6. Now, in the preceding verses here in John 12 41, John is explaining that Jesus said all these things, he did all these signs people didn't believe. And then he gives a few quotes from Isaiah. He says, well, God said this would happen. God prophesied through the prophet Isaiah, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, because God already has prophesied it through the prophet. And then again, Isaiah said, verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And you recognize those words from Isaiah 6, which we read this morning. Now look carefully at the next verse, John 12, 41. Look very carefully. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who's that? His and him. Well, this is what 
John is saying. Isaiah said these things because he saw Christ's glory and spoke of Christ. And where did he do that? Well, go to Isaiah chapter 6 again, and you'll see exactly what the Scripture says. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. Now, children, look at the word Lord. It's not all in capital letters. That's not Yahweh. This is Lord with small letters, so it's uh, Adonai in, in Hebrew, or it's Kyrios in Greek. This is the title which the Bible uses for the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time we say Lord Jesus Christ, we're using the word which is built on this word in the Hebrew and its uh, comparable word in the Greek. This is the Lord. Like when the apostles, after his resurrection, they said, I have seen the Lord. This is the concept. This is the word they're referring to. So Isaiah saw the Lord. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate state, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, who gets to sit down in the temple? Only God. No one else. The priests couldn't sit down. And so there is the Lord Jesus Christ before his incarnation. He is sitting in the temple, and there are the seraphim. And what are they calling to one another about him? Holy, look at verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Yahweh of Savaot. The whole earth is full of his glory. The Lord of hosts, the Yahweh of Savaot. This is the way that the scripture already way back in the Old Testament describes the Lord, Adonai Kyrios, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah, says John, saw Jesus. He saw the Christ enthroned in glory over the universe with all the angels worshiping him. And he saw that Christ is worthy of the glory and the worship which belongs to Yahweh alone. Only God may be worshiped in this way. And there we see in Isaiah 6, Jesus being worshipped in that way. Well, a lot of theology and translation questions and details here, and we've been going to quite a few different verses. Why is this important? Why does the church take the time to confess this truth? Well, because God thinks it's important. It's in the Scriptures. And we need to understand what God is teaching us here. What God is teaching us is this. There is, in the universe, right now, a true man. He is a perfect human being. He is a glorified human being. And at the same time, this true, perfect, and glorified human being is God himself. That man is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he sits on the throne of the universe. No one apart from him has the relationship that he has with the Father from all eternity. 
He is in a category all by himself. And this is important because we read there in John chapter 1, we read about the fact that we can become children of God too. You remember there in, in verse 12, to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, so we can be born of God. We can be children of God, but never in the way that he is. He's in a category all by himself because he is God of God, and he has always been God of God. Now, this glorious ruling God and man at the same time, Jesus Christ, he comes to you, he comes into your life, and he says, look, I love you, and I died for you, and I bought you with my precious blood, and I freed you from all the power of the devil. You don't have to listen to the devil anymore. You don't have to say yes to sin. It used to be your slave master, your slave driver. It's not anymore. You belong to me now. You are now my possession. And that doesn't mean that you're my slave now for me to whip. No, you are mine in the sense that a child belongs to its parents. You are a daughter, a son of God. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus offers to you. Now, you do not, we do not have the nature of God we never will have. But what does Jesus promise us? Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, and look at the language here, which is frightening language. It, it's, it's just too much to process, because Jesus tells us, he says, look, when you believe in me, 2 Peter 1 verse 3, when you know me, I call you to my own glory, that glory that I share with the Father from all eternity. I call you to that glory, to my own glory and excellence. I call you to it. And there's more. I grant to you very precious and very great promises. How precious? How great will keep reading so that through them, through these precious and very great promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. What does that even mean? Partakers of the divine nature. We can never become God. We can never become gods. It doesn't mean that. You know what it means? It means that we, unworthy sinners, rebels against the Creator, have been so loved by God that He has sent His Son, true God of true God, the only begotten Son. He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that we could be so united to God that we get to the very limit of what is possible in terms of being connected to God. If we went any further, we would become God, which is obviously impossible. But God brings us to the very edge of divinity. That's what it means to be partakers of the divine nature. There was a time 
when we were not. We came into existence when we were conceived. There was a time when we were not children of God. We were children of wrath. So we became children of God. How did that happen? God, in his grace and in his mercy, in Christ, he loved you with an eternal love. He said, you are mine. You are the apple of my eye. You are my most precious possession. Now, my child, you do not have the nature of God, and you can never have the nature of God, but I will adopt you as my child. And the Father and the Son will come and live in you by the Holy Spirit. There's the partaking of the divine nature. The Son and the Father will come and live in you by the Holy Spirit. And so this last text that I want to look at is John chapter 17, verse 21. John 17, 21. And it's good to follow along in the Bible because this is very dense teaching of the Lord Jesus here. Very, there's a lot in it. This is what the Lord Jesus says about us, about those who believe in him through the word of the apostles spoken and recorded in Holy Scripture. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. He's talking about us. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now stop and chew on that for a while. Let's back up. What's he saying? He wants us united just as the Father and the Son are united. Just as you, Father, are in the Son, and as the Son is in you, that they also may be in us. You see what Peter's talking about here? Part participants in the divine nature. Not that we become divine, but that we get to share in something mind-boggling. We get to share in the eternal love of the Trinity. God says, come on in, and you can be part of this eternal love. You can be part of it. What do we have to give? Nothing. All we do is receive, that they also may be in us. And then look a little further in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then look at verse 23. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. What is the Lord Jesus doing here? He is calling us into communion with the eternal love of the Trinity. He says, you are part of the family of God. As the Father loves the Son, so the Father loves you. Now, now look at those words, child of God. And if you're feeling guilty or unworthy, if you're feeling like a useless and bad Christian, if you're feeling like, why would God even care if I'm in heaven with him or not? Because I'm not a very good believer. Then look again at verse 23. 
I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Is it possible for the son, for the father to stop loving the son? Is that possible? Is it possible for the father to look at the son and find some kind of defect in him, which is off-putting? Is it possible for the father to say to the son, oh, you are too much. I don't want you in my presence because you're nothing like me. I can't have any communion with you. Is that possible? No, it's not. And neither is it possible for the son, for the father rather, to say those things about you. It is not possible for you, believer, child of God, no matter how weak you are, no matter how covered with all kinds of sins that are clinging to you that you're trying to fight against and often lose the battle against. It is not possible for you who are in Christ by true faith. It is not possible for God the Father to say, I don't want you. Go away. You don't belong with me. It's not possible. Because he looks at you and he sees Jesus. He looks at you and he sees Christ in you. That is the gospel. Now try to wrap your head around that. How? How is that possible? God, you have this relationship. Father, you have this relationship with the Son. It is an eternal relationship. Is it, an inf- it is an infinite relationship. It is a pure and holy and perfect relationship. How can you let us, miserable sinners, participate in that? How is that possible? But Jesus uses the language of the Trinity. And he includes us in that eternal and triune love, that eternal love, that eternal unity. And he says to us, mere mortals, he says, I want you to to participate in that. Welcome into the family of God. This, this, this is too much to process, which is why we need eternity to worship God. It's too much. It is too great. It is too high. It hurts to even think about this. But know this, child of God, that no matter what the father of lies is telling you, know this, the father loves you as much as he loves the son. The father loves you as much as he loves Christ. That's what your relationship is with the Father. Now go out and think like that. Go out and act like that. Go out and live like that. Be who you are, sons and daughters of the living God, the very presence of God in this world. Amen.